This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead with the Austin Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, we've got Austin real estate investor, Mike Ayala, and he's going to tell us all about the exciting stuff he's got going on with mobile home parks and income funds relating to mobile home parks. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, great to have you on here, man. Um, before we get started, and before we get too deep in the weeds, most important question we ask here, what's your favorite restaurant in Austin? Jeffrey's by far, I think, has to be my favorite restaurant in Austin. Okay. I've actually not been. What is Jeffrey's and where is it? It's a steakhouse. Um, I'd have to look up the exact address because I usually just throw it in GPS. But um, it's, uh, it's a steakhouse that's been here, I think, since the 50s. Um, and they have multiple other restaurants too, but it's just an amazing steakhouse. Great, great. Great experience, great food. Awesome. Yeah, I think I get so much out of these podcasts and restaurants are one of the best parts of it. I love it. So <laughs> Jeffrey's, I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, and we have a list of all of our recommended restaurants for anybody listening on our website. So Mike, real quick, quick intro for people. Who are you and how are you involved with real estate investing? So I got involved in real estate. I started investing in real estate in 2005. Um, I, as everybody knows, I live in Austin now, but I haven't been here that long. I just moved here probably a year, uh, maybe almost two years now. Um, I came from Phoenix. And before that, I lived in Northeastern Nevada for 27 years in a little town, which is where the majority of my original portfolio was. So I'm newer to Austin um, and I'm here because I want to be. This is an amazing amazing city. I love, I just love almost everything about Austin. Um, and, and I'll just caveat. The only reason I say almost everything coming from Phoenix, it's really hard to beat Phoenix's winners, which Austin doesn't have that beat. And it's really hard to beat Phoenix's golf courses. But outside of that, man, I just love this city. And, um, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit. I'm actually, even though I'm a real estate investor, I don't own anything here because I, I mean, other than go abundance events, which is where we met, um, I'd never even really been here that much. So um, I still have a personal real estate portfolio in Nevada. I started a business at the age of 24 that I sold 10 years later in 2014. Been married for 24 years to Kara almost um, next month. My oldest son is 22. My middle son, Tim, is 21. And my daughter, Caitlin's 19. So I'm an empty nester, man. That's awesome. That's amazing, though. Empty nester, but it sounds like you got started early there, too. Yeah, really early. <laughs> Dylan, so we got married. I was 20 when we got married, and Dylan showed up one year and one week later. <laughs> was it? Was he planned? Not planned, but we weren't not planning either, so sure. it was just, yeah. Yeah, you're happy to have him. Yeah. That's awesome. So, Mike, uh, you moved a few times, so why? what spurred the original move to Phoenix? Uh, so when I sold my business, which was in Nevada in 2014, um, you know, I kind of, I've often said this, it was the best and worst day of my life because, um, you know, I'm, 
I'm essentially retired at the age of 34. That was a pretty decent exit. And we had a, you know, pretty decent sized real estate portfolio. I was kind of looking for what's next. And I found the real estate guys. Um, they have a podcast and a mastermind. So I went to one of their events in Dallas. No, I was actually in Phoenix. We flew down to Phoenix and went to Secrets of Successful Syndication, it was called, and um, just kind of opened my mind. So this was 2016. So it was really two years later. Um, it kind of opened my mind to, you know, bigger real estate syndication, putting, you know, funds and deals together, all that kind of stuff. And um, I joined, I joined the mentoring club. They had a, they had a mastermind and really it was talking as I started thinking about raising capital, I actually took a mobile home park that I owned. It was a 12 space mobile home park. I took that and I decided I was going to syndicate it just so I could learn the process. Because what I was concerned with Jordan is having never raised money before, I was concerned about going out and finding a mobile home park and putting it under contract and then being under, you know, a 65 day, 90 day, whatever it was at that point in time, period of time to raise the money, get the debt secured and close. And so what I did, um, just to not be under pressure because I was a newbie, I took a park I already owned and I sold it to a, to a syndication and I got Mauricio Raul, who was my syndication attorney to, you know, sign off on all of this. And, um, I, I syndicated my first deal, but what I found was that it was really hard for me to raise capital in the little town that I lived in. Um, you know, I was pretty much raised there. I'd lived there for 27 years and there's a lot of old money in that town, ranch money, gold mine money, but people were just not like, they just didn't think about, you know, real estate investing that way. And so um, simultaneously, my wife had wanted to move forever. Like she wanted to just get out of that town. She literally thought we were going to be trapped in that town for the rest of our life. <laughs> um, so just, you know, it was kind of interesting the way this worked out. And I'll answer the question with this. Um, we were actually on a trip that year. I think it was like May of 20, uh, 2016. And we always have Sunday family meetings and we were flying back home and my kids were not with us. Um, and, and one of them texted and said, Hey, when we have our meeting, we want to talk about moving to Phoenix. And we're like, what the heck? So we sit down with our kids and, and we did a pros and cons list and they were listing out all the reasons why they wanted to move. Now, mind you, my son, my oldest son was a junior. My young, my middle son was a soft or a freshman and my daughter was in seventh grade. And so for these guys to want to move at those ages was like just weird. That's but huge. they kind of led, yeah. And we hadn't been talking to them about this really. Like we were talking behind the scenes about maybe moving at some point in time. So I'd have to travel so much to raise money and go to so many events. And, but it all just kind of came together and man, we just moved when they, <laughs> when they said, Hey, let's go. We're like, let's go. And we took advantage of it. That's awesome. That's really cool that they were all thinking it too. So what was this small town? You keep mentioning this small town in Nevada. Elko, Nevada. It was up northeastern Nevada. It's uh, between Salt Lake and and Reno on I eighty, closer to Salt Lake. How many people? Um, probably. So Elko was like twenty thousand, and there's a bedroom community called Spring Creek that was probably, you know, ten or twelve thousand. Um, so probably thirty two thousand in the community, and there's fifty thousand people in the county, and it's like one of the top wow. ten largest counties in the United States. So it's not a big. It's not a big, uh, not a big area. Yeah, no, that's definitely a lot smaller than a Phoenix. Yeah. Um, so really, there was all sorts of, you know, it just not, you ended up in Phoenix. It sounded like there was a lot of good reasons to be in Phoenix. You mentioned GoBundance, but what drew you to Austin? Other than Austin, it's just an awesome spot. You could go anywhere. Yeah, you know, when 
It was 20, it was 20, like 2021, I guess. And I really like Texas. Um, I like Texas from a standpoint. Uh, there's a part of me too, by the way, that's like a, a tinfoil hat guy a little bit. You know, I, I think <laughs> I listen, I think America is the greatest country in the world. And I don't think we're, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to die, but also long-term, you know, I, I think there's some things in our country that are really going to need to get addressed in the long run. And, you know, I just think Texas has a lot of things going for it. Um, I think Texas will probably be one of the last free states standing. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just, I have a podcast called investing for freedom. Freedom is one of my core values. Um, I just love what Texas stand for stands for. And one of the things that my wife and I always talked about was having like, you know, a hundred acre ranch or a piece of land or nothing huge, but you know, just something good sized. And, and I just think Texas is a good place to do it. And so we started talking about buying a piece of land and moving uh, to Texas part-time after, you know, my, my youngest graduated. And so we actually came to Texas in May of 2021 to look at land. And we started looking around and we went back and told the kids, Hey, you know, we're probably going to buy a piece of land and we'll move in two or three years after, you know, Kate graduates. And my daughter, who's the youngest one, she was a junior. She actually said, and this is another same weird example. She's like, I would like to move to Austin, I think. And we're like, well, yeah, you know, you can move. And she's like, no, like, I think now, like, it'd be cool. And so we literally, we had, we had came like May 15th of that year. And when she said that all the kids were sitting around um, and they said, well, let's go check it out. And so we, the next weekend, literally, we all flew back to Austin and we spent a weekend here and all the kids were like, let's move. Um, my, by the way, my two oldest sons were already graduated and on their own, um, at that point in time, well, Tim was graduating and he was going to go to, um, a school in, in Phoenix. But anyway, to make a long story short, we came back here. Everybody loved it. Um, Dylan moved here before we did my oldest son. And then we moved in December of that year, I think, or no, it was October. Um, and my, my middle son stayed, he was at that point in time, he was doing an internship. At, he was finishing the school and then doing an internship in North Hollywood. So he didn't move here. Um, but now everybody's here. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. So this is totally off topic, but you've mentioned this a couple of times and I really want to know more. Uh, you talked about the family meeting. So that sounds like that's a really big, big deal for you. Hey guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here. And I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast, wherever you're listening to it. That would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing, and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, to be honest, one of the reasons why I actually started my first business, I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be an entrepreneur, business owner, any of that. Um, I grew up in a home. My, my, my dad wasn't present. Um, he was in and out of my life and alcoholic, drug addict, abusive. Um, my mom finally divorced him when I was eight. And, you know, as Kara and I started dating in high school, we were always just talking about the future. And we always just envisioned, you know, having a complete family unit. Like I wanted to be a present dad. I didn't want to be, you know, working all the time. And we wanted to travel the world. And when I was 23, I was actually working out of town. The two boys were born. My my wife was pregnant with our daughter. I was literally working out of town, like a hundred to 110 hours a week. Like I was working my butt off running a big um, construction project in Wendover. 
which was between Elko and Salt Lake. I was out of town like the entire week, just missing. This was like not what we signed up for. And so finally, you know, some things came together. And in 2004, I quit my job and I just started a business because I was thinking like, if I can't be present, I might as well be doing it for myself. But I quickly realized as an entrepreneur, you know, our business grew so fast. I was just replacing myself. And I just learned quickly to, um, you know, just work on the business, not in it. And, you know, all the things that we hear, um, hiring management team, all of the stuff, I just did it at an early age so that I could be present with the kids. And so, yeah, family meetings, dinner, we always had dinners together. Um, our kids are tight. In fact, I said this already, but you know, the, the boys live here too. And like Dylan and his girlfriend have an apartment that's like 10 minutes from our house, maybe 15 minutes. They literally pack their bags on Friday night and they they bring their dog over and they move into our house Friday night. And then they move out Monday morning, even though they have their own place. So, you know, that's always been number one for me is just trying to keep the family unit first. And we all get out of balance. You know, sometimes the business takes over and, and that stuff, but it's just trying as much as possible to stay in balance. Yeah. It sounds like it's going really well. It sounds like your kids, you know, everybody was in alignment going to Phoenix. Everybody was now in alignment going to Austin and you're still all really close here in Austin. So that's awesome to hear that you're able to also do really well at business and do really well at your home life too, which is the most important piece. Yeah. You know, I say this all the time, but I think most people literally believe that wealth, success, and business are at odds with freedom and family and relationships. And it's just so far from the truth. You just have to keep both of them as a priority. And I don't really believe in work-life balance. I believe in work-life integration. We always talk about this and I probably shouldn't put it out there too far, but you know, we write off almost every meal we ever have together, Kara and I, because we're just always talking about business. Like it's just part of our life. That's a good tip. I have, we're always talking about business too. So I yeah. might steal that. Yeah. <laughs> So Mike, you know, I know we talked a little bit, you had a portfolio in Nevada and you started syndicating mobile home parks. Where did that take you? Because I know you didn't just stop at the 12 space mobile home park. Yeah. So in, in Nevada, Kara and I, when I sold my business in 2014, by that time we had 45 single families, single family and small multi. So singles, duplex, threeplex, we had 45 doors, um, five mobile home parks, three commercial buildings. You know, I had a consultant early on that I was working with that basically really challenged me to, you know, think about uh, pa not passive income, but but wealth building outside of my business and also the tax consequences. So we started investing in real estate as our business was spinning off cash. By the way, that business was, um, we were on the 2009 Inc. Fastest Growing Companies in America. So it was just like out of the little tiny Elko, Nevada, right? But it was just... Um, we just started investing in a lot of real estate. So when I sold um, the business, we had a pretty decent real estate portfolio. And then when we started, you know, learning to syndicate, I met my business partner, Andrew, and we teamed up and we got up to 35 mobile home park communities. Um, and I'll be honest, like we grew faster than we probably should have. We bought some deals we shouldn't have, but I'll, I'll say this all day, every day. I would much rather, you know, move and make mistakes and learn from them then then be frozen with fear and not doing anything. And most people that want to start a business, most people that want to invest in real estate, they're so frozen with fear about making a mistake that they just never do anything. And I'm I'm kind of the opposite. I'm a little bit hard-headed and I I have a high tolerance for risk. So we went out and bought 35 communities. We've sold a bunch of them, some of them because we needed to sell them, some of them because the timing was right, some of them because you know we had a certain property in a single state. Um 
we're down to 19 communities now and really just focused on getting these communities turned around. That's awesome. So with those 19 communities, oh, you said you had 35 and you've pared that down to 19. Are those all in one area or all in certain areas or are they all spread out? They're spread out. Um, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, um, Missouri, Alabama, and North Carolina. Okay. Yep. Um, do you have any like overwhelming concentration? Is there 10 in one area or one state maybe? The the concentration is really in the upper Midwest. The outliers are North Carolina. We have one park there. Um, Alabama, we have one park there. Kansas, we have one park there. But the rest of the concentration is in Ohio, Indiana, just kind of that upper Midwest right there. Sure. That's awesome. Um, so you said you've had single family, you've had multifamily, you've had some commercial buildings. What attracted you to mobile home parks? Kind of a different asset. I bought it on accident the first time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really? had no i I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, two thousand seven ish. Um, so we had set a goal. Our our BHAG, like our big real estate goal, was two single family homes a year for ten years. That was like what Kara and I really wanted to just accomplish. I thought, man, if I can get twenty rentals by the time I'm sixty five, I'll still be running this HVAC and plumbing business. And I'll I'll retire off these rentals because they'll be paid for, and which is not a bad, not a bad plan, right? Like that's a pretty good plan. So I bought two that first year. I think it was 2006, and then 2007 comes along, and we're doing a bunch of plumbing work in this uh, mobile home park community in in Elko. And the manager calls me up and he says, "Hey, um, this park's going up for sale. the The lady that owned it lived out of Vegas, and she was having some financial issues." And he said, are, are you interested in buying it? I know you've been you know, talking about buying some real estate. I actually knew the guy. I said, yeah, I'm interested. So he put me in touch with the lady that was selling it. And she said, there's a first position note on this um, with a private money lender at 7%, um, which I thought was kind of crazy at that point in time. That's um, just normal rates now, but <laughs> um, 7%. great for private money too. Totally, right? Um <laughs> So she puts me in touch with the the guy that had the note. He said, yeah, I'll let you assume it. No problem. And she needed $85,000 cash. That's why she was selling it. So she basically said, you give me $85,000 cash, let you assume the note. It's a 72 space mobile home park. It needed a lot of work, but I'd been doing a lot of the work in the park. So I kind of had a good idea of what it needed. I went and saw a mentor of mine, Jordan, who, you know, I'd already borrowed some money from him. He's a pretty successful business guy, does a lot of real estate, has mobile home parks himself has multifamily, single family. So I went and showed him the deal and he looked at me and he said, you know, you're really lucky that you're my friend or I'd, I'd try to steal this deal from you. Like, this is a really good deal. And I'm kind of freaking out. Cause like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about mobile home parks. Like I had two rentals, but he looks at me and he says, man, just go buy the deal. And what had scared me, Jordan, and you probably wouldn't advise anybody listening to do this, but what scared me about this deal, she needed her cash in 15 days. Ooh. So she's like, I need to close in 15 days. And I tell, even the limited real estate experience I had, I tell Barry, my mentor, I'm like, Barry, there's no way we're going to get title um, done on this and, and be ready to close in, in 15 days. And he said, so he used to be the county assessor and he had a ton of real estate experience. And he looks at me and he says, listen, go do a preliminary title search, get that done. Let me look at it. Um, let me do a little digging. So I did the preliminary title search. I brought it back to him. He said, buy this thing, just lock it up. And I'm like, okay, I'm still freaking out a little bit. And 
he's like, well, what's the problem? I'm like, Barry, I don't have the down payment. Cause we were like new in business. I didn't have a lot of cash at that point in time or funding receivables and growth. He says, listen, I'll loan you the $85,000 down payment in second position at 9% interest. If something goes wrong with the deal, I'll just buy out the first position loan. He's like, this is a good deal. Go get it done. I'm like, I have like no risk. I have a mentor who's willing to mentor me. That's also lending me the down payment in second position. That's willing to take out the first position loan if something goes wrong. So I bought my first deal, man. And I don't know that I could have been any luckier than that. Yeah. Well, in the mentor was, he was confident in the deal too, which had to have given you confidence. Yeah. He was so confident that he's like, I'll loan you the money and worst case scenario, I'll just take over the deal. Yeah. So you said that one needed a lot of work. It sounds like you were doing plumbing work on it already. Like the water lines, maybe. Yep. Yeah. The infrastructure and even some of the houses were owned, owned by the community. We were, you know, changing some HVAC systems. We had done quite a bit of work in the park. Um, it took us probably three and a half, four years to get the park, you know, like fully the infrastructure done and everything else. But, you know, I paid, so 390 was the first position note. 85,000 was the down payment. So, you know, I paid 475 for a 72 space mobile home park. And I sold it three years ago for 1.65 million after cash flowing every day since the day I bought it. Yeah. That's a great price. Yeah. It was awesome. That's an amazing price. Well, you know, what's crazy that I think I have to address too, is like most people would tell you not to buy a commute. Don't buy a 72 space mobile home park in a town that's less than a hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. But I crushed it, man. So you said if fifty thousand was the county. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. No, that's a that's a great deal. That's amazing. So after that, you found a business partner and you just started syndicating parks too. Yep. Um, yeah. In two thousand sixteen, my partner that I teamed up with already owned nine mm-hmm. that were syndicated with investors, and so I just kind of teamed up with him. He had. Um, he needed a, his partner had some issues and so they bought out his partner. And so what he really needed was an operator. So I came on the team as the operations guy with the, you know, plumbing, heating and, and mobile home park background. So. Okay. So this mobile home park, this first one you bought, I'm really interested in this, this park. It sounds like you got an amazing deal. It needed a lot of infrastructure help. So water, sewer, electrical, maybe. Um, how many spaces were occupied? The 72 spaces? I think, I don't remember exactly, but I think probably 47 to 49. It was somewhere in that range. Okay. What'd you get it up to before you sold it? Uh, well, we eliminated some spaces. Okay. Because a lot of the, and this happens a lot, like not to get in the weeds on this, but when you're looking at mobile home parks, you really need to look at zoning laws because a lot of times, you know, when this park was built in the seventies or whenever it was built, whatever you're looking at, the zoning was different then. And so sometimes when you take over a park, you really have to look at, you know, what maybe used to be enough room for, you know, a 12 by 52 foot uh, tin can mobile home. Um, Now you would need to put a 14 by 60 and the lots don't have enough room. And so we lost some lots. Um, That community is probably, it probably has 67 to 60, maybe 68 usable lots. And, um, when I sold it, it was probably up to 62 usable or filled. Wow. That's really good. Yeah. Um, so I know, you know, this just, just all sounds amazing. So 
what are the challenges with mobile home park investing? You know, it sounds like, hey, you know, you buy this mobile home park for $500,000. It has 72 spaces. Um, that sounds like an amazing deal for, for anyone. But what are the challenges just in general with mobile home park investing? And why is everybody not doing it? Have you wanted to be part of GoBundance, the tribe of millionaires, but just haven't hit that millionaire status yet? Well, now you can, not even being a millionaire, by joining our new program, GoBundance Emerge. My name's Jamie Gruber, creator of GoBundance Emerge and member of the GoBundance community. And now you can join GoBundance.com slash Emerge, GoBundance.com slash Emerge. Use code Jordan for $100 off this 12-week goal-setting program and mastermind that'll propel you to being a whole-life millionaire. A lot of, there's a lot of challenges and I'll start with the management. Um, you know, it's not, it's not that difficult to find a good property management company. Well, let me just say this. It's not that difficult to find a property management company. Um, it's harder to find a good one, but in the mobile home park space, it's really challenging. Um, just because they are different, they're more management intense. Um, so it's harder to find a management company. So a lot of people that get into this space, um, they'll they'll vertically integrate. So we have a property management company. We have maintenance guys on staff. Our managers are on staff. I have a corporate team. Um, the management is not as easy. And I'll just address, this is really to get into the meat of it. Um, a lot of people that buy mobile home parks don't want to own the home. They want to sell the home to the tenant, which makes a lot of sense because the tenant owns the home and they just pay you lot rent and you don't have to worry about the maintenance on the home. That's the tenant's responsibility. The downside to that is if the tenant isn't paying you lot rent, it's not like you can just evict them like you can on a rental house or, you know, a multifamily. It's harder to evict them because they own the home. And so you can't just like take their home from them. You can but it's a process. You have to go through the courts. You have to lean the home itself. It'd be like repossessing a car, essentially. You can't just like, or even repossessing a home. It's not quite as challenging, but at the end of the day, in most states, and most counties, you have to go through the process and then you have to auction that home off um, for a certain dollar amount. And that could take six months, 12 months. Um, so people just need to know that up front. Now, if you're going to do the model where you rent the homes, it's not as challenging because it's just like a rental. You just evict them. Um, but then, you know, you've got maintenance and wear and tear on a mobile home, which isn't many times isn't as solid and sturdy as, you know, a, a regular rental or a multifamily. So also a lot of these communities that people are buying, um, including the first one that I bought, you know, the owners and the maintenance guys are not doing things professionally many times. The first winter that I owned that community, there was water that was like so many of the homes didn't have water. What we came to find out is like whenever there'd be a water leak in the old piping, the owner, one of the previous owners would just dig down and, and he'd put a garden hose and then run like a six inch deep trench with a garden hose up to the house instead of fixing the water leak. And so then when the winter's happening and it's freezing, it's buried six inches deep. And so in the middle of winter, you know, you're having all these freezes and we had to go buy um, temporary lines that were insulated that they would use for like RVs to like get temporary water hooked up. And so anyway, to make a long story short, a lot of these owners over time didn't do maintenance the way that, you know, a good maintenance company would do it. And so you just got to be aware of some of those things. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned the 
the rentals versus the tenant owned homes. So are most of yours rentals or are most of yours tenant owned homes or do you have a mix? We have a mix. We're about one third rentals, two thirds tenant owned homes. Okay. Um, not, not by choice. Um, you know, you talk to some people, I can always tell if somebody's new to the mobile home park business and, and they're just on their talking points because they'll be like, yeah, we don't, you know, we don't want to own any of the homes and we don't, but the reality is at any given time, you're, you know, repossessing homes. Not everybody in every market can afford the down payment to own that home. Um, we have a, we have a program called, um, the rent credit program. So if somebody qualifies to buy a home, but they don't have the down payment, we'll let them move into that home. And then once when once they've um we we apply a, a big portion of the the rent portion of the house to a rent credit. And once they've saved up enough money on that rent credit, then we'll let them finance, we'll we'll convert them to financing on ownership. That's awesome. That's a really cool program. It's just it's a path to home ownership for people. Yep. Yep. That's awesome, man. Um, so yeah, your goal is not to own the homes, but just inevitably you end up with some of the homes. I know a, a lot of people, again, you're talking about, and I'm new, I'm looking to buy a mobile home park myself, but you're you're taught, hey, only buy public utilities. And I think that seems to be hard to do. Are all of yours public utilities or are some of them private? Some of them are private. Um, they are, they can be challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you know, if you know what you're getting into, um, I'm not scared of it. In fact, I often say, you know, if, if 90% of the people say, don't do X, if you can figure out how to be successful doing X, you eliminate a lot of the competition. So, you know, as a, for instance, um, we have a community that has a, um, it has a packaged sewer system. Mm. To replace that sewer system is about $500,000. We knew when we were going to buy it that we were going to need to replace that at some point in time. So, you know, as long as you can get the right price and it makes sense, most people look at that and they just don't even look twice at it. So 90% of your competition goes away. And the reality at the end of the day is um, if 90% of the competition goes away, there's not as many people competing for that property which means the price can be more competitive. So as long as you can, you know, as long as you can build in, um, we have, we have another community that is, um, it has a lagoon system, Ooh. which a lagoon is even worse <laughs> than a, than a packaged sewer system. However, um, the city utilities, um, are not that far from the front of the community. And so we just had a survey done to see how much it would cost you know, to repipe the community and it was like 440,000. So we just built that into it and, you know, planned on um, eliminating the lagoon at some point in time. So for anybody listening that doesn't know what a lagoon is, because I didn't until I started looking into mobile home parks, could you explain a lagoon? Yeah, it's literally, um, and most people have probably seen these somewhere, you know, you got the big city, you know, sewage treatment plants and on the other side of the treatment plants are always settling ponds where, you know, the, the water just goes out and the solids settle and then the rest of the water evaporates. Well, a lagoon is a system that when the sewage comes in into the first part of the, the lagoon system, there's these um, aeration beds that have, um, they have a product inside of them. And so the water runs through this product and it seeps down and it settles and then it transfers out to a pond 
pond number one. Ours has three ponds. It, it goes out into pond number one and the solids settle. And then the water transfers to another uh, lagoon and more solids settle. And then it transfers to a third one. Some of that evaporates. But then by the time it gets through the media in the first stage and then three lagoons, then it ultimately dumps into a river. So it sounds like it's a big operation to me. I, I was under the impression that it was, you know, a pond the size of a house or something. No, the only way that you have a pond the size of a house really is if you have like a package sewer treatment plant okay. that's treating that and then it goes into a secondary stage. Um, those will be pretty small. Okay, but a lagoon is a multi-stage system, it sounds like. It sounds like it would take up quite a bit of space too. It really does, yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, is there anything that you wouldn't touch? So, you know, you, you mentioned packing plants, you mentioned lagoons. Do you have wells in your parks? We have, we do. Um, we have two communities that have wells. Um, both of them have a backup well. Um, so that made me feel a little better. And both of the wells perform pretty well, but there is a lot of risk in this. I don't want to make it sound just, just for the record here. Sure. Um, I don't want to make it sound like, oh yeah, I don't, you know, just do what everybody else is doing and you're, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's going to be better. There is a lot of risk and you have to know um, if one of your wells goes down, you could be in a situation where you just don't have water period um, and can't even get a permit to, to drill another well or to go deeper um, so you really got to know, like, you really got to know what you're up against and make sure that your wells are performing and, and really look at the risk, um, on all of that. I have a background in plumbing, um, and a background in mobile home parks. And so, you know, that allowed me to get comfortable with taking some of these on, um, septics are tough. You asked, you know, what would you not want to get into? There's communities that have, you know, a septic tank that'll serve four units or, or eight units. Um, no matter what, at the end of the day, you're going to end up pumping those out. Um, so you just got to make sure that if you're going to look at any of those things that are challenging like that, that you really know the cost reward of what that's going to take. And, um, you know, if you've got a, you got a park in a community that has septic tanks and there's only one pumping company there, um, that's a big risk. So just, just knowing what you're getting into if you can avoid these three things, the lagoons, the sewage package units, the four things, the wells and the septic tanks, I would. Mm -hmm. um, but there's opportunity there. And um, I've got communities that have packaged sewer systems that have never had an issue. So, Okay. Yeah, I think growing up with septic tanks didn't nothing. Those don't scare me so much, but it's good to hear that, that those can be a big issue too. Um, what's the biggest mistake you'd say you've ever made just generally in real estate investing, but specifically mobile home parks too. So our model was to buy distressed mobile home parks. Mm -hmm. um, we bought too many too fast and we didn't see COVID coming. <laughs> well, um, yeah. yeah. So, and I, in hindsight, I wouldn't have bought that many distressed. I would have blended more stabilized assets into our portfolio along the way. We did have some stabilized, but you know, our, we intentionally went after distressed properties. Um, when things come to a halt, like new manufactured inventory, 
in 2020, it really hurts. Um, so I would have bought, I would have blended my portfolio a little bit more um, stabilized. I probably would have went 40% stabilized, 60% turnaround. Okay. So when, when you're saying distressed mobile home communities, you're talking about communities with large vacancies, that empty yeah. lots. Yep. Yeah. So we buy, say we bought a hundred space mobile home park community. Um, maybe 50 of them are occupied. Mm. And again, we're buying things that some buyers wouldn't because they want, you know, stabilized, they want cash flow um, immediately. But our model was go buy these. I had a full construction cr traveling crew that would go into a community and we would remodel 10 or 15 homes that needed remodeled. And they would, so they, my, my construction crew would go in, they'd get two done, they'd stay in hotels, they'd get two done. And then they'd move into the two and then they'd remodel 10 or 12 more. And that's how we'd get occupancy up quick. Um, well, when COVID happened, I've got guys traveling all over the country that are trapped in our communities. So we basically shut our construction company down because we didn't, you know, they, they couldn't travel. And, and these guys are away from their families and, and they're trapped in Tennessee, you know, five states from home. So we shut our construction company down and then we couldn't get inventory too on the new houses. Um, so yeah, I would have... Um, so when we say distressed, yeah, it's buying a hundred space park that are, that have 50 pads occupied, and then we're going to bring in 50 new homes. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about it. It's, it's expensive to bring in new homes, but then you ran into the problem too, where you just plain old couldn't get them. Right. Um, yeah. So it went from three months to get a home to 12 to 18 months, and we don't know when they're going to show up. Yeah. That's really challenging. It's extremely yeah. challenging. So if you had to start over today, would you do anything differently there as far as, you know, the homes you bought? Because I know you're, you've got a lot of communities right now. Obviously, you've sold some. Things are going well. But if you could go back and change anything, would you? Jordan Moorhead here. Really quickly, wanted to tell you a couple other ways you can keep track of us. If you want to listen to all these podcasts and ask questions, the Moorhead team on YouTube is the best place to be. And then Austin Real Estate Investors on Meetup is a great place to keep track of all of our meetups we have going on. Yeah, I think I just, like I said, I would have bought more. Um, I would still buy distressed communities because I, you know, nobody saw COVID coming. I mean, you kind of alluded to that when I said it. I I don't know that we could have planned for that. Um but if I had it to do over again, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't know who, who's all listening to this, but you know, if I was a flipper, mm -hmm. I would probably also same lesson. I probably, if I'm going to, you know, have a hundred assets at a time, I'd probably, I, I'd probably want, I'd probably lower the flips and have some, you know, stabilized cash flowing rentals as well, instead of just all flips. And I talk to flippers all the time that are like, you know, they, they're making good money, but they don't have any they don't have any cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing that I'm saying. Instead of buying all flipped flip mobile home parks, I would have bought some more stabilized. I would have bought 60% turnaround, 40% stabilized instead of 80% turnaround, 20% stabilized. Yeah, and that's hard, man, because the value add stuff looks so much better on paper. You're like, oh man, I'm going to triple my money on this one. Yeah. Whereas if you buy the stabilized one, it's just spitting off dependable cash flow, but that doesn't look as good on a, a spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard. And you know, maybe the lesson Jordan would have been just don't buy so many so fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that's just all about, you know, understanding your investment strategies and really understanding, you know, what do you need now? And that's been a big lesson for me this year because I made a bunch of investments over the past couple of years that had a longer time horizon before they started paying out well. And it sounds like that's kind of with these value-add parks where if you bought stabilized first, they would have started paying out a lot quicker mm-hmm. or paying out better quicker. Yeah. And the value-add ones are awesome, but then the the flow of homes stopped in COVID and now you're playing catch up. Yeah. So, you know, I know, I know we talked... We talked off the podcast a while ago, and you have a good plan to fill these homes up. So could you talk about, or fill up these lots? Can you talk about what you're doing to fill lots right now? Yeah. Um, so inventory is back up, um, which is good. There's actually an inventory sur- surplus now. Um, and that's mostly because the retail side of the manufacturing businesses um, slowed down substantially because of interest rates. But on our side, it really hasn't because, you know, the the um, residents are used to, for them, it's really about the all-in payment, not so much the interest rate. So we're still not having a, you know, too much of a negative impact there. So um, what we're doing to fill lots now, because there's so much inventory, we have a, we have an income investment fund. It's called the Wavemark Income Fund and investors can invest in that. They get a 12 to 14% return, depending on, you know, whether they come in for 12 or, or 14 months, we're actually utilizing that to order homes from the manufacturers and then once the homes get delivered and set, we have a, a credit facility that we utilize to finance the residents on the backside. So right now we're teaming up with investors who are providing the capital to order as many homes as possible. And then, like I said, once the homes get set and filled, then we refinance the investors out. That's awesome. So yeah. somebody puts their money with you. You said it was 12 or 24 months. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Yeah, if you come in for 12 months, it's 12%. If you commit to 24 months, it's 14%. Okay, and is that that's accredited investors only, I assume? Correct, yes. Okay, awesome. That's an awesome return, though. So you're, you're using that money to place the home. And then when the home is placed, there's another company, like I know uh, 21st Mortgage is out there. What's the PEP is another one, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Performance Equity Partners is great. We use them. Um we also use 21st, but we have a $30 million credit facility from a private equity group that we control and manage that we can also utilize to finance. Wow, that's awesome. So you just yeah. need to get the homes installed or set up, and then residents are there ready to buy these because they're they're very affordable homes, and they actually get to own a home rather than just rent for probably the same price or better. Yeah. Um, and actually it almost is the exact same price. That's why the value proposition, I mean, unless somebody knows they're moving in the next year or two, um, the payment is almost the same. So we can get, we can get a family into a three bedroom, two bath, brand new home in most of our markets for under a thousand dollars. Wow. And I've been in some of these brand new mobile homes. They're actually really nice. They're really nice. I think people have that idea in their head of like, you talked about the old tin can. But the new ones are awesome. You go in, you're like, wow, there's this giant island. There's this really cool kitchen area here. It's a nice home for a thousand bucks a month. That's amazing. Can't do that in Austin, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Mike, do you have any long-term goals for real estate investing for yourself or your company? Yeah, you know, honestly, on the manufactured housing side, we're we're kind of winding down. And at some point in time, you know, we'll either exit or refinance. I don't have a, you know, I don't have a clear 
I mean, I, I would love to keep everything I ever bought. So, you know, if we can hold all this, it's great, but you know, we have investors, so we have to, um, just kind of navigate all of that too, when it comes to the mobile home park stuff. But for me personally, um, you know, it's usually just, a. for me, I have a blended portfolio and I want to continue that. Um, I'm Karen, I have an idea of, you know, investing more passively actually than we have. Um, and we've been doing that more the last couple of years, everything we've ever invested in something that I bought, something that I managed as a GP or controlled, but I would like to, you know, probably have 60% of my portfolio in assets that we manage and control and own and probably 40%, you know, passive investments with other people, which is why I love GoBundance. Um, we're invested in, you know, some other people's deals within GoBundance too. And so I think as I get a little older and, and want to start slowing down, I'll want to operate less and, and start spreading some of my investments um, into other operators. Yeah. And the passive investments are pretty sweet. You'd find the right person, you find the right investment, you just keep getting checks in the mail, don't have to do anything at all. Maybe download a K1 once a year and give it to your accountant. But yep. those are awesome. Um, and I like that, you know, like you're talking about, you you made a lot of money investing actively and in business. And in the future, you're going to be able to put that into passive investments that pay you without having to do anything, without having to fill up lot of lots and make sure everything's going well mm -hmm. that's really cool yeah. mike do you have do you have any other opportunities for investors you talked about your income fund there any other opportunities you're working on for people who want to be passive investors yeah i'm actually teamed up with a guy named elliot in another deal called um it's a group called vacation equity group um and we're actually working on it's a it's a smaller luxury vacation rental fund that's really focused on larger houses, like six to nine bedroom type houses on suite where um, people can do meetings, they have chefs, that kind of stuff. So luxury vacation rentals in specific markets. The first house is actually being done right now in Phoenix. It's a great, great location, basic Camelback. Um, but yeah, that's open to investors right now. Um, yeah, it's a great, great deal. That's awesome. Um, and it's, is there a best way for people to learn about investing with you? Yeah, probably um, just go to velocityventurepartners.com. Um, there's actually a, a free report that your listeners can get there if they want um, on why investors prefer private placements. Um, but yeah, if you just go to velocityventurepartners.com, they can fill out the information there. They can actually see the investments with Vacation Equity Group or the Wavemark Income Fund, whatever they want. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check that out. For anybody that hasn't done any passive investing and happens to be an accredited investor, those are awesome opportunities. Um, if you want to know if you're accredited or not, definitely ask your accountant or it's an easy Google search, Investopedia or something will pull it up. But way more people are than no. So yeah. definitely check that out. It's Mike, true. do you have a favorite business or mindset book that you like to recommend to people? Man, there's so many good ones, right? But I think if I had to narrow it down to one book, um, I think Richest Man in Babylon is probably the book that I read the most, um, just over and over. It's just such a great read and has shifted my thinking around money and life so many different times. Um, just love that book. Yeah, it's a great story too. I love those stories. Yeah. Good stuff. Awesome. Do you have a, a best way people can get a hold of you, Mike? I know you mentioned your venture we'll put that bench can you say that again the website yeah velocityventurepartners.com velocityventurepartners.com we'll put that in the show notes for everyone is there anywhere else that you like people to follow you or learn more about you 
I have the Investing for Freedom podcast. I, I record um, two times a week there. We're actually getting ready to go to five times a week. Wow. Um, and then I'm pretty active on Instagram. Um, so at the Mike Ayala. Awesome. Wow. Five times a week is a lot. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, more power to you. Yeah. Um, so at the Mike Ayala on Instagram, correct? Correct. Yep. Awesome. So follow Mike at the Mike Ayala on Instagram. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at Jordan underscore Moorhead. Um, listen to investing for freedom. It sounds like you're going to have a lot of opportunities to listen to that here soon. Are you going to do five days a week of releases? Yep. Wow. That's awesome, Mike. Yeah, we've been doing two for about three years now, um, two days a week. So we're getting ready to go to five. Wow. That, well, again, more power to you, man. It's a lot of work for anybody listening. That it, It's so much more work than people hear. They hear the hour, but a lot more time goes into it than that. And it, you got to do it. You got to be consistent. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Great having you on here, Mike. Um, sounds like people have a lot to look into when they're trying to learn more about you and your opportunities. And I'm sure you're going to have a lot more coming. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, man. It's been fun. All right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Cheers.